podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. They might talk about human music, filming, books, football and box sets, exercise and maybe even food. Trivia and sports, politics and health, sometimes well-being too. On the life with Brian. Welcome to another stroll through what we loosely call a podcast with myself, Mark, and my co-host, Matthew, doing the steering. All the while, top ex-footballer and now nationally recognised beard enthusiast, Brian McClare, gets all the headlines. Um, We can't really get you out of the papers these days, Chucky. What's going on? Well, it's, well, it must have been uh, quite an interest in her shoot people, isn't there? So, me being one of the uh, uh, very uh, prominent people, I suppose. I don't. I have no idea. It's a complete and utter mystery to me. Yeah. Um, well, they say that a week is a long time in politics, so hopefully the next hour or so won't feel anything like as drawn out for our special guest on this episode. He spent over 30 years as one of the country's highest profile political journalists in roles including the BBC's political editor and now as one of the hosts of Radio 4's Today programme. A warm welcome to Nick Robinson. Thanks for joining us, Nick. Well, what a pleasure to be here. And Brian, what a delight to, well, sort of meet you. Well, it's uh, maybe one day we will meet in person, you know, I can uh, think it'd be a bit more interesting than Gary Neville anyway, that's my claim. (laughs) That's my claim at the moment, Nick. You know, you might have changed your view in maybe 10 minutes' time. But If you work with BBCs, we don't talk about any Garys along with football and politics. Well, actually, that was that was where I was my opening thing because because of uh, recent um, media and all the other stuff surrounding that, I was thinking to myself, well, fantastic, you've agreed to come on, but you can't actually talk about anything. Well, you know what? Apart, apart from your job, which is in politics, I thought, oh, well, we're going to have to sit and go through various different tales about politicians, ministers, aides, advisors. Well, uh, we're not broadcasting so, on the BBC, so we have a little bit of freedom here. So I wasn't quite sure. So what are you actually allowed to talk about apart from? I'm allowed to talk about anything completely impartially. Now, right. It is slightly tricky when it comes to football. For people who are not watching but are listening, they may not see, but I am in a temple to Manchester United. There's an old Trafford sign here just behind me, and then a whole series of shirts, a few of which you might even recognise. I'm afraid a sharp one, which is what you wore, was, is up on the well, other I, I was going to say, I didn't see a Brian McClare model there. Yeah. From, from... yeah, well, this is my son's bedroom, oh. right, which I now use as a study because he's left home. Right. But it has shirts all over the wall, United shirts. And I have my shirt one upstairs. You're forgiven. You're forgiven. I'm sure Brian forgives you. I mean, that that was something I was going to start with, really. Um, you, you, your love of United, did, did that come about from you doing a paper round uh, for a news agent that was run by a former United player? It did, because my dad wasn't into football at all. I mean, we just didn't watch it at home. I mean, this is, of course, in the days of three channels and uh, match of the day and the big match on ITV. But my news agent in the days that ex-footballers did not own yachts but ran pubs and news agents was a guy called Stan Pearson who when I begin this sentence I'm I'm worried about quite where people think it's going but he did take me when I was a young lad to delivering papers to see his caps now let me just explain these were his England caps I think from memory he had eight eight caps uh there and uh yeah he 
enthused me for football. And then I went to clean the glasses in the local pub. Uh, and there was a guy who said, I'm a season ticket holder at the Stratford End. He was a bit older than me. And he used to drive me in his souped up mini. And I went, and I'm a posh kid from Cheshire, you know, about 15, 16 miles south of Manchester. So I, and it's in the days that football was still quite lively. And I used to go to the Stratford End. And the main thing I remember is tying my specs onto my head. <laughs> And then, and then adopting that pose you had to take on the strap because you thought, if there's a surge, I'm going over and my glasses are falling off. So all I really remember, I'm afraid, Brian, I can't really, you may well have scored goals when I was there, but all I can remember is thinking, fuck, I'm going to fall over and get trodden to death. So I used to hold on and then you'd run and see if you go faster than the people behind you to get to the front. <laughs> what, what era are we talking here then? Which, just, well, the first game, and that wasn't then, the first match I ever went to United, I was just seven years old. I went at the age of seven. Right. I think I saw one of George Best's last performances. And I have a vague memory, it may be that listeners can help if you don't have an encyclopedic knowledge. I have this vivid memory, but which I've never managed to kind of Google the answer to, that Alex Stepney was either sent off or carried off injured. And a striker... Can't remember who. It's 1969, 70, 71, that sort of period. Actually went into goals and it was against Spurs. Now, my son, who's a bit nerdy about these things, has tried to find the match. And it could be that my memory is playing tricks. But I'm almost certain that happened. Challenge accepted. I was certain. Well, we can, uh, we can ask Alex Stepney himself that question. So, well, yes. Can I just ask you a quick question? What was the local that you worked in? When you played the, the glasses, could you remember what it was called? Oh, was yeah. It, no, that was it in Macclesfield or was it in Presbury? That was in Posh Presbury, yeah. No, Presbury, I live at, yeah. I was brought up in a little village, which is now footballers' wives' territory. Yeah, Presbury, yeah. Yeah, and I used to live there. in Wimslow. I used to exist yeah. in Wimslow. Pub called the Admiral Rodney. Oh, the Admiral Rodney, yeah. Just yeah. talking about that with my friend the other day, actually. Because? Because he was in there for a pint. <laughs> <laughs> and were you? <laughs> I wasn't there, no. No, he was there, yeah. Rumour yes. had it that when Wayne Rooney moved into the village, they made him so unwelcome he didn't go back. You know? That's a possibility because he was just telling me an actual story about the uh, a landlord that used to, to work in. He may be around about the time you go. My mate's a few years older than me and he used to live in the village in a, a flat around the corner. And he went in one day with his wife and he sat next to his wife one afternoon and he gave her a, a, a kiss in the cheek and the landlord came up and said, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> There is no canoodling in here. <laughs> and, he got, and he thought he was taking a piss, you know. He I thought, can actually oh, good. see, Brian, the guy who did it. He was so pompous, I can say this now because he's dead, right? The guy who was the landlord called himself the Admiral. That might be, the, the, that might be the him, Admiral. yeah. I think it might be him. Yeah. yeah. When we worked, he was so mean that he used to give you stale pork pies at the end of a shift. He <laughs> <laughs> would always take it turns to whip the pork pies under the overturned barrels, you know, that they use for tables. Um, you just didn't eat those, Brian. Come on. <laughs> uh, there's a boy. Oh, I'd have a go to it. Yeah, yeah. If only if it was really bad, I wouldn't eat it. Yeah. yeah if it was blue. If it was blue, pork pie, I wouldn't eat it. But... It wasn't that bad. No, I didn't, I didn't finish answering your question, Brian, which is what am I allowed to talk about? And joking apart, when the old Gary Lineker thing got going, somebody tweeted, well, Nick Robinson's going to have to stop talking about Manchester United on air because I do just occasionally mention it on Radio 4 uh, if Gary Lineker can't talk about football. So um, I retweeted saying steady on because I thought it was a bit too much, really. But, um, yeah, I've been a bit conscious of it. 
But we, we don't like to talk too much football and especially not too much United on this show because yeah. we're, we're an open church. But while we're chatting about it, I'm just, just wanted to say, what was your sort of era then, Nick? Remember, you know, when it, I guess everyone's got an era, haven't they? Of yeah. Well, um, so I went as a little kid, I went as a seven-year-old, and then I had this period at the Stratford end when I was about 16, so that would have been, you know, um, uh, add 16, 63, what do you get? <laughs> 79, 80. So I'm the doc you know, where we thought doing well in a cup was 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 doing well. Um, and then, of course, I watched, but sadly far too often on the telly rather than that Old Trafford, I watched the glory days that Brian was part of and, uh, and afterwards. But the thing is, at the time, I was working on a, on a weekend politics show. And then in that period, the glory, early Ferguson period, uh, we had our kids. We had two kids, 95, 97. So sadly, I went... Very, very little. I just watched a lot of it on the telly. I did see Brian do the assist for David Beckham to score that amazing mm-hmm. goal. One of many uh, great assists we've discussed at length <laughs> on this show. The halfway line, I was actually behind the goal. Oh, you behind the goal? Yeah, against yeah. And I yeah. uttered the words, Brian, what the... F-? <laughs> well, thought- that's, what I, that's what I'd said just before he'd done that. Yeah. Just the same kind of thing, because... I was sub that day, so Fergie sent me on and said, uh, calm the game down. The game's won. We just need to go keep a hold of the ball. Nothing daft or anything like that kind of thing. So you go on the pitch. Ball comes to me and I pass the ball a very, very short distance to David, who's just inside our, cent- our part of the centre circle. And you knew, you just knew with the look, the way he's set up, he's going to have a goal here. And I'm thinking to myself, please don't, because I'm going to be the one that's got a hairdryer for it. <laughs> you know he's going. To, he's just told me a few seconds before what the instructions are, and you're fucking up big time by having a shot, right? So I, he has a shot, and I thought, well, that, that looks not too bad, you know. But I'd done bit of for fuck's sake, and I went, oh, actually, that looks not too bad. And because of the reaction of people like you behind the goal, so you could see it had gone in. Yeah. And then my second thought is Scottish goalkeeper. <laughs> It was Neil Sullivan was in goals for Wimbledon. Yeah. That's my. I'm thinking of, but it's it back to the Scottish goalkeeper. You know, no wonder he scored from there. It was. <laughs> I think your third oh, on your own countryman. Uh, yeah, that, I, well, I think... Scottish goalkeepers were always a thing of fun since 1963 when England beat Scotland nine three at Wembley. What, nine three, my God! I no, think... Our reaction behind the goal wasn't. Oh, it's going in. Our initial reaction was, "What the fuck are you doing?" I mean, yeah. what? <laughs> the reason it was brilliant, and it's a bit, I guess, like seeing a six in cricket or seeing someone do a home run, which I've done at baseball, is when it's first hit, you don't know, and in fact, we just thought he was a fool. And then it, it takes long enough, which is rare in football, that the actual yeah. arc of the ball takes so long that you suddenly go, "Oh my God, it's going to." It's going to go in. And then we did go absolutely potty. And I think, Brian, the third thing you thought that day was, oh, he scored. I'm going to quickly have to go and celebrate with him so I can get on the TV because... Well, you know, yeah, well, if, I'd known first, that, if I'd have known first. that, I wouldn't have bothered, you know. It was yeah. just a kind of... I think it was more relief that I'm thinking I'm not going to get a bollocking. Or I might still get a bollocking, but at least they said, <laughs> well, he scored, you know. Because, they've I been mean, you, you've, you've obviously met Sir Alex. Uh, Nick, yeah. That... Talking talk, talk of bollocking, has he seen the beard? Uh, oh, I seen it. I came in. I I, saw, I I went to see him a few weeks ago. Yeah, I went. I did, uh, somebody had asked me to drop something off, so it was unannounced. Usually, I, I text him and ask him if it's all right to pop in. You know, so he knows I'm coming. But 
at this time I just went and uh, handed her the note and I buzzed on the little buzzer of his office in Wimslow and uh, she let me in, which I thought was, I thought she'd have given me more of a grill and I just thought, said what my name was, you know, and she let me in. <laughs> and uh, I just, uh, he was in the office with, uh, with, with Jason, his son, discussing whatever they were discussing and I just thought, oh, right, I'll just bring straight in, you know, so I just opened the door banged it behind him, you know, and he's like, fucking hell, what's that? You know, they looked up and they went, fucking hell, it's a wild man from the mountains. (laughs) (laughs) The reason reason I ask is, I have got a pale imitation of your beard. You know, barely bum fluff, frankly, on my face. (laughs) I I grew it over the summer and promised I would shave, because I can't be fake to shave over some holidays. I promised I'd shave when Liz Truss gave me a leadership interview, and she never did, so it's been there ever since. (laughs) And I went to United the other day, and I know Fergie a little bit because I made a documentary with him about leadership. And he just looked up because I was a guest. He looked up and went, what's that? That's all. <laughs> just looked at me oh, like. Yeah, and he's... the thing about Fergie still, I'm going to be 60 this year. If I could have jumped out of my seat, run to the bog and shaved on the spot, I would have done. Because he just still has that effect on me. He yeah. says it's mildly disapproval. Well, that's um, that's something you've said, Brian, isn't it? He still he still haunts you to to this day, almost. Uh, well, yeah, yeah. You still I still have uh, I still have dreams about him, you know. Not really? not mainly, not usually very uh, pleasant ones, you know. But uh, <laughs> hair drying uh, dream. Think, uh, there's some sometimes it is oh, just disappointment, you know. Like, I mean, it I, I gave me a when I, I was fortunate to. I've spent eleven years as a player with him, and then. A couple of years later, I came back into the, the academy and the coaching side of it, and I spent another 14 years, 13 years with them. So uh, a long time to be involved with someone who's really, your, I mean, your, your boss, really. Uh, and they never had changed in the sense of what he expect, what his aspirations and what his expectations were. And I got a, a, a hairdryer one lunchtime 14 years after the event. What have you done? I hadn't marked my man properly in the in the League Cup final which Sheffield Wednesday won. So and I couldn't I couldn't send about it because he what he told me to do I didn't do. Yeah. So but, hold on, he he had given you the hairdryer at the time, but he gave it you again. I imagine. Ah, yeah. he just had to come into his head for whatever reason, sitting at a lunch table surrounded <laughs> by the rest of the staff, and I'm getting the you know, he wasn't shouting and screaming, but he was definitely saying, "Yeah, that was your fault," and all that. And then, and then, and then I was, I'm going, "That was, that was whatever, man." Twenty odd years before, and I was yeah. going, "That." He goes, "Does it matter?" What then, I think uh, is fascinating, and um, I'd be fascinated to know your view. The reason I wanted to make a documentary about him um, was because I wanted to know what were the leadership skills that he had. Forget football, other people. I'm not a football journalist. I wanted to know what was it that meant he could get in people's heads so successfully and were those skills he could transfer if he became a politician or a general or you know a chef in a big kitchen or a conductor we we made this documentary and I was amazed at the way that in the short time I had exposure to him and my team and in fact my boys are both now season ticket holders at the Stratford end um and the short time they had with him they spent about half a day with him they would have jumped out of a window for him I mean he had this amazing yeah. capacity to make People want to please him. He was the best pavement psychologist I've ever come across. Mm-hmm. He, he learned from several other 
wonderful football psychologist, Jock Steen, Bill Shankly, studied, though I spent a lot of time studying Jock Steen and being in the company of Jock Steen. He used to go to this, he knew that Jock Steen was a Celtic manager and um, went to a particular restaurant and when he was when he was a player at Rangers, he used to go at the same restaurant, hoping he would bump into him and maybe be able to spend five or ten minutes just talking to him about about mainly about coaching and management, not about playing. And the other thing I think you just mentioned there, he read he read books about generals. Mm. He read loads of stuff about books about generals. Biographies. He's by the American Civil War. He's got all, all of that sort of stuff. He used to love all of it, and I used to. They used to ask me, I go. I don't read. I said I didn't read biographies, and he said, "Why? Why you should be reading biographies?" I says, "No, no. As far as I'm concerned, real life is hard enough without me reading about other people's real <laughs> lives and hard lives. Right? I'm just like to read fiction, and he just mumble something. But when later on you reflect on that, he was looking for something that he could use in a team talk, or he could use maybe just chatting to someone. And I think what you see is as all those he, he he's very good at right away getting to understand the person. So certainly before I came to Old Trafford, or even before he even thought of it, suggesting I might go to Old Trafford, he knew everything about me that he could find. This is pre yeah. World Wide Web, but everybody that he would have asked several people and found out as much as he could about me before he made a decision. And that wasn't that 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 was uh, separate from the actual football part. Yeah, you as a person, in other words, and the way you're so Yes, he would try to find out as much as he could about what you were like as a person. And that would be part a big part of his decision. He said several times he thought you needed to be a special person to cope with being a Manchester United player, not just a good player. Yeah. Um, he had simple things about trust in your programme. Rio Ferdinand mentions that right away. That's right. Loyalty. As I say, that if I can, I can go and see him now, so many years after, um, 30 years, 30 more years ago, 35 years ago, and I can still go and see him now. And if he could help me, if I wanted something, he would help me. And respect. And if you give him all those things, he'll give you them all back uh, and as, as much as he can, depending on whether you're, you're in need of them or not. Yeah. And uh, the other thing that I've said all along consistently, he was a lucky bastard. <laughs> what, you mean 99? No, oh, you can root through lots of different things, loads of different things. I asked his, I asked his um, brother-in-law that question once, Nick, uh, and that was what he told me. He said, I said, what's his magic? You know, he'd known him since he'd been in his, a young man in his 20s. What's his track? What's his thing? What's his? And he said, "Oh, I, I said, I'll tell you what." He says, "He's he's he's just a lucky bastard." Now I'm laughing at him. He goes, "No, no, I'm serious." He says, "It really is, yeah." He says, "See if he fell into the Clyde. If he fell into the River Clyde, when they fished him out, he would have a salmon in either pocket." <laughs> and I but thought, yeah. He he here's a thought for you, and I think this is there are parallels with the world I operate in, which is politics. Of course, you need luck. But it's also about the fact that you give the impression that it wasn't luck. So it's all about building the myth with your own team in football. But effectively, I think people don't understand that politics is really a team sport. Um, if a leader, the prime minister, leader of the opposition, doesn't have people behind them in the House of Commons believing in them, 
uh, they can't get anywhere. Essentially, it is about that. It's a tribal sport politics in many ways. And so when you're lucky, you need to make it look like this was your genius. And it seems to me there are lucky people who are still hopeless leaders. And there are unlucky people who can almost turn it around. Fergie was probably both an excellent leader and lucky. And the fact that he had that demeanour, uh, I remember he saying to me in that documentary about Secrets of Success, he used to talk about washing his face before going into a news conference. No, he didn't actually wash his face. I think it was a typical from some journalist or presenter at Granada TV. Taking my glasses off now. But he used to effectively do this to his face because however pissed off he was, however angry he was, however worried he was, he realised that as he walked into a news conference, he had to put on a sort of game face, which if he'd been lucky, if he'd been unlucky, he had to have a demeanour that was convincing to people. You know, the other attribute that would be applicable to anything to do with leadership, Nick, was they made decisions and they stuck to that decision. Now, over that long period of time that he was involved in management, he got more decisions right then he got wrong, but with the major decisions that he he would uh, he would accept, he'd made wrong. He would learn from them and would try and uh, make up for those particular uh, errors, uh, which maybe some politicians uh, in particular could uh, heed. I think the capacity to learn is the most important quality in a political leader. People who can spot. i tell you who, who does this and I was impressed by is Rishi Sunak. I first met him when he came in the House of Commons at some event. And he was clearly very clever. He was clearly actually the cleverest person in the room, but he was also pretty arrogant, pretty full of himself and not that interested in listening. And at the end of this event, it was a dinner, actually. The host said, what do you think? And I said, you know, privately, some version of that. It turns out he passed it on to him. And the next time I saw him in the House of Commons and then I hosted him, he stood in for Boris Johnson in a leadership debate that I hosted, a TV leadership debate. He just picked up these skills of listening, of being very courteous, of not making himself look too clever. And he'd learned, you know, and you see politicians who, who who learn from their mistakes. Equally, you see people of which the most obvious is Liz Truss, who don't learn anything from their mistakes. Do you think well, there's a similar similarities there, Nick? I mean, you obviously you you interviewed uh, Alex Ferguson being one, but obviously a lot of p- political leaders and prime ministers. And I was going to say there must be a similarity there, not just getting it right, but getting it wrong as well. And we've seen managers have disastrous spells at football clubs that they'll never shake off. And you could arguably say that about well, you've just named one there, yeah. Trust and 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 several others. And it, it must just be that ability to to not adapt or not learn from your mistakes and uh, just keep doing bad habits. Badly. And I think it's a, uh, you need an ability to see yourself as others see you, which I don't think Liz Truss had got. I think you also need an ability to shake that off. Gordon Brown had a pretty grim time as Prime Minister, having been a rather brilliant Chancellor. And we used to say at the time, and he hated being interviewed by people like me, he used to get incredibly grumpy about the questions and get angry and he'd he tried to walk away from the interview, even though he was still attached to his lapel mic. And you'd say, Prime Minister, hold on. And he'd, and he'd look even more angry. with you. You'd say, no, no, you're going to garrote yourself or you're going to pull over the camera. So you're trying to help him out. And we used to say to each other, doesn't he realise how bad it is? And I realised that the actual problem was the reverse. He, he spent his life realising how bad it was. 
And his inability to shake that off, and I think some football managers have that, so that every day, and particularly at night, I think he was beating himself up. And friends of mine who work for him or what ministers would say, they get emails from him at four in the morning. His problem wasn't that he didn't see how people saw him. He was obsessed with how people saw him and couldn't write, forgive himself for not being good enough. And he wasn't worried about those chances. And, um, and, and I think now he's a much happier man as, as a result. I think the really successful leaders who obviously have a bit of the actor in them, whether it's a Blair or a Cameron, to a certain extent, a Thatcher, can just live with the fact that people don't like them very much and that they make mistakes and they just think, okay, tomorrow's another day. They can still sleep. See, after the research I've done, I think you made a mistake, according to Neil Sherlock. You should have went down the political view <laughs> and that we should be talking to Boris Johnson now. <laughs> yeah, this he is should my... have been the journalist and you should have been the prime minister, I think. So I'm not quite sure what happened there. but yeah. mm. This is my friend who I now have said to my friend, you know, being a friend is not dropping your friends in it. And when <laughs> Boris Johnson became prime minister, he told The Guardian that when we were students together at Oxford, that he thought I'd be the Prime Minister and that Boris Johnson would be the editor of the time. <laughs> and I have had to live this down ever since. They know. I genuinely think I wouldn't have been a really hopeless politician. Oh, well, they're, they're both of you together then. <laughs> What's the difference you might have? <laughs> yes, yeah. I don't think you would have been in front of a Commons committee. I think that would have been certainly... I, I, hope, that see that I, Nick, I yeah. hope that my behaviour would not have been such. <laughs> yeah, I think that is, uh, that is definitely true. No, I'm, I tell you why I don't think I would have made a very good politician is that um, first of all, I would have too many arguments. You have to, you have to in your early days as a politician, you certainly have to schmooze. You have to know when to zip your mouth. You have to creep yeah. people, and I'm not terribly good at that. Really, it's not kind of my thing. Um, and the more I've done this job, the job I'm in now, which is like my whole adult life now, I've got this appalling tendency that whatever I hear, I can always think of the arguments on the other side. I spent my whole life annoying my friends and my family, going, yeah, but on the other hand, you know. Well, yeah, it's a a great ability in your role to have a a balanced view. Uh, One of the things when I was looking at stuff is, does it it piss you off about politicians, MPs, ministers, advisors, age, making comments about you, you know, because you've asked, the right question or the question you wanted to ask and it's it's irritated someone else for example yeah so there's there's a kind of blanket thing that uh, one of the ministers made that you personally had cost the bbc a fortune now does that does that annoy you or do you just think well that's no i've actually done my job properly and that's the way that they behave because maybe it's it's like anything that when we when we get to our age i'm born the same year as you is that Nostalgia, right? Is it what it used to be? Now, I know there wasn't all the um, access to all of the stuff we have now to be able to see in all sorts of different formats, but it seemed that either the lives were better in the 60s and 70s and 80s, or there's just more opportunities to get found out now. I think there's more opportunities to share them. I mean, I think if politicians in the 60s, 70s and 80s 
had made the gaffes that they did make and told the porkies that they did tell, but it could be instantly shared on social media. I don't think it would look that different. I mean, I, I, I hesitate to say this because it makes me sound like a real old fart, and you and I turned 60 this year, Brian, I know. Oh, thanks, yeah. Um, <laughs> that I do think there's been a loss of the wartime generation. I do think if you look at the giants of our youth, political giants, a Dennis Healy for the Labour Party, or Roy Jenkins later for the, the SDP, a Ted Heath, these guys had served. I mean, they'd fought. They'd seen the Nazis. They'd seen the communists. And in the end, they kind of had perspective that there were people who didn't agree with them, who they would have fought and died alongside. If you went to even older politicians like Harold Macmillan, they'd, they'd stood in the trenches. So, yes, you could attack them as posh public school, out-of-touch English Tories, but they'd stood in the trenches being bombed with kind of people of a completely different class and background. And I do think we've lost something in terms of that view of service. I know that was, makes me sound very old-fashioned, but I do. But to answer your specific question about... It was Nadine Doris, it was the culture secretary. I've, I felt both the things you said. Part of me just thought, I'm just doing my job properly, so fuck off, I don't care what you think, really, um, was one view. And I know throughout history, politicians of all politics have attacked people, asked them difficult questions. Winston Churchill complained that the BBC should have been on the side of the government at the time of the general strike in 1926, Brian. He had this great quote, which he said, um, you can't be impartial, which the BBC is meant to be. You can't be impartial between the fireman and the fire. He thought we should take sides and we refused. Eden, Tory prime minister in the in the 50s, who took us to war in Suez, tried to nationalise the BBC. He was so angry that we put the leader of the opposition on the BBC to oppose the Suez war. Harold Wilson, great Labour politician from the 1970s and prime minister, rang the director general of the BBC and said that it was a plot to stop Labour winning the election, that Steptoe and Son, which, as you'll recall, Brian, was the great working-class so, uh, comedy show of the time, Steptoe and Son had been timed for an hour before the polls closed. And Wilson claimed that it had been deliberately done by the establishment of BBC to stop working-class people going out to vote. <laughs> and he was at your line of punchline. So when... Uh, when the then Director General said to the Prime Minister, well, what would you like me to show instead? Wilson is alleged to have said, Oedipus Rex. And then he paused and he said, or any other Greek tragedy. <laughs> <laughs> so at one level, I don't give a step. They say these things. What annoyed me about Nadine Doris is she was using pressure on me not to stop me asking different questions, which whatever, water of a duck's back. She was doing it to threaten the BBC. And to say, I have the power to cut your budget, not like Nick Robinson's budget, but like hundreds of millions of people, budget that pays for your match of the day or your BBC singers or your orchestras or whatever. And I have the power to do that because I don't like his questions. Well, that's unacceptable. Speaking about, um, you know, getting, uh, talk, talking to politicians, uh, you're obviously used to grilling them uh, and they also insist uh, on not giving you straight answers. Um, but how would you approach interviewing footballers and managers um, because they're renowned for giving very boring, rigid answers to the same old questions that they get. So how would you use your training and your experience in interviewing uh, very difficult characters and getting something that the, the punter watching television wants to listen to uh, rather than the same old, it's a game of two half cliche stuff. It's really difficult because I watch 
football interviews and despair at how banal they are. And you can tell they're so well-trained footballers now that virtually anything you ask them, they say the same thing. You know, if, if I've scored, if I'm, you know, God help us, Harland, and I've scored five, he's been trained to say all that matters is the next game. It was the team that did it. Um, we're not taking anything for granted, and it's the next match that really... I mean, it's just a whole series of awful cliches. And I guess the trick is not aggression, because... The difficulty with it being aggressive in a football interview is we know that teams will, and their PR departments, will literally just cut off reporters or media organisations that ask tough questions. But I guess what I try to do in some of my interviews sometimes is just have a surprising question so that the answer doesn't spring into their mind. I often say that interviewing a a well-trained person is a bit like, and this only works if you're a certain age, it's a bit like an old-fashioned jukebox you know, what happens is you ask a question and the brain of the person answering goes sort of A3, which in the old days was like Elvis or B5 was a different record. And they just have in their head stock answers that are coming out. And the trick is, can you ask a question where they go, oh, shit, I can't think of a stock answer. I'm going to actually (laughs) think of an actual answer to it. Um, Now, this has dangers because I was asked to uh, be the host of United's big charity event. There's a once a year thing for UNICEF at Old Trafford, in which they get people in, raise a lot of money. I think it's the only event that all the first team players are obliged to go to. And I was asked to interview a few of the first team players on stage. And they were obviously not used to it. But I went up beforehand and said to Rio, for example, come on, let's not do this boring stuff. Um, And he's a bright guy, as you know. What can I ask you that's personal to you? And he says, well, I, I put the music on in the dressing room. So I said, right, I'm going to ask you about that. I'm going to ask you about your playlist. And he gave a great answer. It's just instantly more interesting. Um, and then I interviewed Nemanja Vidic, who was very shy, actually, but it was about, he'd only just come to England. It was about how he was finding My big mistake was I didn't have time to ask Wayne Rooney before going up what to ask him because he was a late sub on stage. And I thought, can I risk asking him, because he just had hair treatment, he just had that. <laughs> Ryan, do you think this is a good idea? Can I, can I suggest, I don't often say Google. Google, I might do it now for you. Google Mick Robinson, Wayne Rooney, okay. And you'll find the photograph that tells you all. So I said to, to Wayne Rooney, on stage, bear in mind, in front of all his colleagues and all these rich northern businessmen who paid a fortune to be there, I, all I said is I pointed to my bald head and said, got any tips, Wayne? <laughs> <laughs> well, the photograph that emerges uh, was <laughs> the photograph that emerges was described by the Daily Mail as Wayne Rooney's death stare. <laughs> and if you do the second picture that comes up on Google, you see Ryan Giggs and Rio, I think, absolutely pissing themselves, but I'm not. Not sure Wayne ever quite forgave me. Well, he obviously gave some tips to Giggsy because he got it done as well. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. I think it is one of those things. It's that when it comes to uh, vanity, you know, not a lot of um, yeah. people, but certainly football players in particular, and certain my experience, and they don't want it to be, uh, they are no. vain, but they don't want it pointed out, you know. For the, for the reasons that we've just discussed there, Nick, um, and I don't know when you're passion for politics came about it was I don't know if it was around about the same time as football probably a bit older but do you think sometimes you might have wished you were born in a previous era when you had sort of this great well there seemed to be this greater access to 
political figures where the members of the press seem to have, you know, you could, you could get the ear of a prime minister or have a, an, an informal word rather than now with this whole circus uh, and this whole ring of steel that's around uh, around everybody, not just politicians, but it seems like yeah. everybody. So, You know what? I'm not nostalgic about access. Um, I once lost my mobile phone actually on the way to Old Trafford and the, there was a new data protection officer for the BBC who said, have you got any numbers of ministers on your phone? And I said, yeah, I've got, I've got the cabinet's number on my phone. And she just paused and went, no, no, I didn't ask you that. I asked you whether you've got any ministers. I said, well, I've got the cabinet's phone numbers on my on my phone. And her face went white because I've broken apparently data protection rules by losing their numbers. She said, you've not got the prime minister. I said, of course I've got the bloody prime minister's number on my phone. I'm a political journalist. You can still get through to those guys quite easily. I mean, I don't think he'd mind me saying that I teased Rishi Sunak about a Southampton result the other day. Um, you know, you can talk to politicians. What I regret is that the big set piece interviews that Robin Day used to do or Brian Walden used to do on the TV, where you would see the likes of a Thatcher or Kinnock when he was opposition leader, put themselves up for 30, 40, even longer minutes. And you felt like quite a big portion of the country were tuning in. And it was a grown-up asking questions of a grown-up. And they weren't being just evasive. They were trying to answer the question, make their political points, of course. I miss that. I miss the theatre of it. Yeah. Is there anyone Is there anyone if with regards to that set piece interview that throughout from history, anybody at any point you could choose yeah. to sit down there and go, This is Nick Robson, exclusive interview with oh, who would it be? Who would it be? Yeah. Gotta be Churchill, hasn't it? Because Churchill. Churchill, I don't know if you know, Churchill feared television. It was just beginning. So you do still see some pictures, obviously from the old movie reels, but TV. But he did a, a screen test of what he, I think he called, I'm going from memory, I think he called it this infernal machine, but it was something like that. He, a bit like the old cliche about, um, you know, African tribesmen decades ago never had exposure to, you know, an in inverted commas, the white man, had that fear it would take his soul away, the camera. And he did a screen test at home. Um, and in fact, he hated it so much, he ordered it to be destroyed. And we only know because when his secretary died and the kids were kind of, you know, clearing out the house, they noticed that there was a kind of loose floorboard. And in there was this inn. And she had, against the instructions of the great man, she had kept the screen test. But he, he never did a proper interview. And it would have been amazing to have done an interview with church. On that, that point I made about access, it, it brings me on to something I wanted to talk about your your podcast. Um, um, I mean, I've been listening to him a lot recently i love it obviously um i mean you had guests on there from the likes of mick lynch lee anderson gary neville all ends of the spectrum should we say to to be polite um i just think do you have the time do you, do you enjoy the fact you've got the time to talk to these people now on a sort of one-to-one basis i think you call it a chat rather than a stern or a stern conversation rather than a grilling or a conversation, conversation. Not conversation is there. yeah um i mean I, from the listener's point of view i, I think it's great because it to me it seems like you're not you're not there looking for necessarily a headline or a, like you would do if you're interviewing for ITN or, or BBC. You're, you're chatting to these people as probably like we are here. You, you, you've got things you want to ask them. You've got things you want to find out. But it's the podcast to me seems to give you the freedom to have that chat that you may not have done, you know, when in your political guise. 
That's right. And that is why I love it. And it's a bit like, you know, the pleasure you guys, I think, obviously, get and Brian gets from doing this podcast. It's a different sort of conversation. But it, it came from the fact that I was getting bored with having an argument with the London cabbie, you know, the cliched London cabbie who basically says they're all the same politicians, that is. They're all on the take. Um, there's nothing that separates them and they're only in it for themselves. And I used to have arguments in the back of the cab going, honestly, that really isn't true. I mean, it's so lazy. It's just not true. Um, and eventually people would say to me, mates would say, well, you keep saying these people are kind of more interesting or have greater depths. We don't see any of that. And that's how we came up with the idea of doing a broadcast, which spends a lot of time talking about their backgrounds because I think people are very struck when they hear the life stories of uh, Mick Lynch or I mentioned earlier Nadine Doris that they the thing I like most about the program is that people come up to me and said I still hate that person's politics but they're quite they're quite likable aren't they or I, I now get it so if you take someone like Nadine Doris who massively winds up one section of society in a bad way obviously a lot of other people like her but her telling her story about growing up in real poverty in Liverpool, and remember hiding when the coal man came round to <laughs> money from home, um, remembering, although not telling me a great deal about it, but the abuse that she suffered at a Roman Catholic school. You hear the, and the anger that she felt that it was assumed simply because she lived in Liverpool, she had to hate the Tories. When you hear that story, there's a whole lot that makes sense about why she is what she is now. And that sort of sense that full football managers have, which is if you understand not so much the kid, but the teenager, you'll understand the adult. You know basically what their character is like. I think it's true of politicians. If you, if you get what they were like, 16, 17, 18, that period, what shaped them, what made them angry, what makes them passionate, you basically understand who they are now. I mean, it, it leads us on that we had uh, Matt Ford on a few months ago and uh, his brilliant podcast. Um, if you know Matt Ford's uh, politics, you'll know, you know where he's coming from. But he quite often has guests on from very much the, the opposite end of the, the political spectrum. And I think that's what makes makes it great listening. And I remember we spoke to him. We said, you know, is there anyone you wouldn't have on there? And he said, no. He said, I'd have Donald Trump on there in a heartbeat because it makes for great, great listening. I assume you're the same. There's no one there you yeah. say, oh, oh, no, I'm not not having them on the yeah you know. you, you, the, the, there are moments when you know that there'll be a part of the audience going how can you just have a conversation with this man or woman i mean i interviewed the home secretary suella braverman the other day but it was the day after she published the new bill now normally when we do these conversations that they're, they're not that topical there at another time but just by chance this ended up being the day after she was publishing this uh, new law on migration, which meant that anybody who arrived here, in inverted commas, illegally over the channel, would automatically be sent somewhere else. Now, that was being cheered by some and other people absolutely hate it and and go as far, well, Gary Lineker, for goodness sake, as describe it as like the language of the 1930s. So when I'm having a conversation with her about her childhood, about her immigrant background, you're very nervy that it will look like you're just you know, soft soaping her and giving her the chance to present herself in a in a generous way. So you do have to be wary of the fact that parts of the audience don't want Mick Lynch to sound good, don't want Swell of to sound good. But in the end, we've just 
you know, I try to put the odd tough question, but I try to say to the audience, you're grown-ups. Mm. They still hate this person at the end of it, but at least you will know, and you might be slightly surprised, that Sarah Braverman studied in France, loves Proust, can read French poetry, um, had a, a mother from Mauritius and a father from Kenya, I think I'm right in saying from memory. Um, that's interesting. It may not make you like her policies anymore, but you might get a bit of a sense of where, as a second-generation immigrant, that abs- that sort of... I was about to use the word obsessive, and I don't mean it in an insulting way, but obsessive patriotism, a, a belief that you have a sense of what Britain is and should be more than anybody else. I think when you hear that, you go, OK, I sort of get that. You know, I'm, I've sort of clocked it. Yeah, totally. That's how I felt when listening to it, uh, listening to it recently. And yeah, I felt exactly that about just tapping into the uh, under the skin of a politician that you wouldn't normally get. I think that was an interesting point when she was talking about um, um, when her teachers went on strike or something and she said she sympathised with them. And you said, well, there you go. You give me a headline there, you know, in a tongue in cheek way. But um, but yeah. yeah, but it's not done for that, is it? It's not done to, to get headlines or to uh, to call no. pain to them. It's done for a for the listeners to be able to get get a better impression of, uh, of yeah. So going back to your football question, I don't know if Brian thinks this would work. I think if I was doing those football interviews, and I ought to tell you, but both my boys are or want to be football journalists. One of my sons works for Crystal Palace as a journalist, and the other spent last year uh, working for United, actually, uh, writing the match day programme. I'd try to know, it's a bit what like what Brian was saying about Fergie, I'd want to know enough about the player that I could ask them something that isn't just a kind of any a question that any idiot could ask them, something that I knew about how they train or how they behave or who they like or something, in the hope of just drawing something out of them uh, that isn't frightening for them. It's not something they're thinking, oh, my God, my agent will be furious if I say this, but just something gives you a bit more. In the way I did with Rio Ferdinand and his playlist, it's not, it's not some great revelation, but, it, it, you know, it was a nice story. I think you're right. I mean, there's very much more um, media training than there was when I, mine was learned on the hoof about what to say and what not to say. A lot of it was down to the fear of not upsetting the manager, particularly at Manchester United, because you knew that if you said something, well, you could have said something in, in any media at the time, and it may have cost you your career at Manchester United. That's just how, how the man would be thinking at times, you know? So you can use Japstam, for example, mentioned something in his book, and he said different things about it now, but the very next day that the book came out, Japstam's been sold to Lazio. But with regards to now, with the, yeah, I think that uh, particularly from a young age, he's come into academy, they should have media training, but the media training should be part of, should also uh, be formed of that exactly sort of thing. You're there as... So, 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 so football will use football like We're quite happy to accept all the money that's coming in and has come in from all the broadcasters. The broadcasters then ask for whatever it is in, uh, in reply. And I know that they keep pushing and keep pushing. And in some sports, they allow the cameras in, uh, to the dressing rooms. So far, that's not been, uh, been given the, a positive, uh, answer from, from any Premier League clubs, but, if you can uh, make it more of a, I teach them that this. Listen, you're there because people want to hear something more interesting than you just mentioned there about Harlan, and this is what you should be allowed to say that for a more interesting point. And that without getting to the 
pointing to your head and Wayne Rooney kind of thing, still be able to ask a question that's not going to be, well, stop that. You know, they should be, so the, the media training will be good, but it's not good enough and doesn't have the, for me, same thing, the understanding. Actually, the reason why all this is happening is because those people who are watching, whether it's the BBC, ITV, or any of the uh, any other uh, opportunities that they're to watch or listen to football, uh, those people are paying a lot of money. You know, Amazon now and, and the BT Sky. Okay, it's not a huge amount of money, but it's still £13 a month to get the BBC, mm. uh, the radio and all this stuff. They don't, for me, they don't give enough back. There's, there's not okay. enough connection now between the supporter whether it be at the game or the supporter who just watches through or watches or listens in any other way or reads about it in any other way they can there's there's, there's taken away from that and it there's they, they, I I know the players are going to suffer for this later on like, because they it's that's not real. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you're gonna I, I try to live it was a bit easier when I came down to England even though there's more people in England than it was in Scotland playing for Glasgow Celtic in Glasgow. And I try to, I just live my life as a try, as a normal person, a normal-ish person in Wimslow, right? There's, as you know, being brought up in Presbury, there's lots of different people. They're not all multimillionaires. Mm. And by taking your kids to school in the morning, I go into the supermarket and do normal things. People accept that you are what you are. And I've just described what I did. I was, was I wasn't, any better than anybody else. I just did a series of extraordinary hobbies that I just happened <laughs> to get remunerated for. But I wanted to make sure that I was seen as a, a not the same as everybody else, right? Because I knew it was going to finish. Right? Yeah. So 35 in my head was roughly the time that football finished. That was just historically the way it was. If you were fortunate enough not to get to badly injured or, or to, to fall out in love with the game. And you were going to then have to be Exactly the same as everybody else. I know. I know. I was, I was coaching after that, but it wasn't in the the public view, and they're going to suffer from that by not. They won't know how to speak to the people in the street, you know, because that that nobody's. They haven't really changed. They've all got big houses with big walls around them and all the entertainment things they need to. But you need to go out. Yeah. You know. So Alex Ferguson now I know goes shopping. He goes and does the shopping now. Right. So the, yeah, so he's got that connection. So so, but he's he's always had that connection with the with the fan, with the person, you know. He's great with he's great with ordinary people. I mean, I'm sorry, horrible phrase, ordinary people, but you know what I mean. He um, in the documentary I did with him, I, mean, I think this is a well known story. I talked about him um, going and doing the going down with what were still called the laundry women, yeah, it's like a sexist phrase, but to, to do their weekly draw. And he would put his quid in once a week. And I thought, is kind of how much of my being sold a story here? Well, at the end of this filming, we filmed for two days with Fergie. It was basically two hours interview in the morning, two in the afternoon, two days running. And we filmed in a house in Wilmslow, which just rented a house for a backdrop. And he could have just buggered off at the end. He went to the fridge and he got out this big magnum of champagne. Uh, and so this is on me, and he got glasses out. The key to the story, though, is this. There were probably 10 people by then. There's makeup, and there's a driver who brings in all the kit, and there's a heavy guy who moves all the camera equipment, camera operators, et cetera, et cetera. He handed those glasses to people by name. He went, Nick, Brian, 
Bob. And I was embarrassed to discover there were two whose names I didn't know. It was my bloody programme. <laughs> now, clearly it's a technique. He'd been told the names, he'd learned them, he'd got his head around it, repeated them a few times. But that connection, as you say, is there. And I think you're you're right that what people see on the TV of players makes them feel unreal. And when we discover later, which you obviously knew, but we discover through the Class of 92 movie, or we discover now they're pundits, Nicky Butt's very funny. Paul Scholes is quite shy, but quite funny. Uh, Gary Neville, we didn't really need to be told, was an opinionated git, but he's a, he's a very likeable opinionated git who does this thing. Some of that, if that could show in the post-match interview, some of it would make people connect with football, I think, a lot more than they, they do. As is now semi-traditional, we have a quiz for Brian and Nick. And considering we have a son of Macclesfield in Nick and an adopted son of Macclesfield in Brian, you might say that they are a couple of Mac lads. So therefore, your challenge is to spot the song lyrics from the town's oh. rude, crude and very lewd punk band, the Mac lads. And there are, there are, of course, red herrings along the way. So we're going to welcome you both to what we've called Mac or CAC. Now, <laughs> it's the usual penalty shootout format, five alternate lyrics each. And you have to spot the real MacLads lyrics by saying Mac and the imposters by saying CAC. Uh, and there are possible bonus points on offer this time uh, for telling us the names of any of the songs that the red herrings do actually come from. Um, so do you both understand the rules? I do, I do but I give up already, yeah. <laughs> no, I'm as ignorant as you are. Okay, well... That's the, that's right. the trick of the game, you see. You've got to yeah. pick the ones that aren't rather than ones that aren't. <laughs> Yeah. All right. So let's let's begin uh, as we always do with our guests. So Nick, your opener is How are you doing, pal? Mind if I bother you? Me birds buggered off in a BMW. I'm going to go Mac. Spot on. It is Mac. That is from their song Nuki Brown. Puts the pressure right on from the start. Oh, I've watched already. Well, I don't know. I don't know. So, Brian, listen to you, and I'm going to try and read this in a neutral. I don't want to give too much away in the way that I read it. Well, out, you, so. Have you got a Macclesfield accent? Well, <laughs> not necessarily. But uh, so this one is for you, Brian, and it and it goes. <clears throat> well, I'm rather upper class, high society, God's gift to ballroom notoriety, and I always fill my ballroom. The event is never small. The social pages say I've got the biggest balls of all. Cack. Yes, it's cack. Can you uh, harbour a guess at who it might be? It has harbour a guess who it might be. Yeah. No. It's actually ACDC, Big Balls. (laughs) (laughs) My mum banned me from going to see them at the Manchester Apollo when I was 16. Oh, just for being... I assume you never got to see the MacLand. No. No, never got to see the MacLand. All right, okay. Right, well, we've had two decisive... uh, Penalty so far. So your next one, Nick, is had a love affair with Nina in the back of my Cortina. A seasoned up hyena could have, could not have been more obscene. I think that is a lyric, but it isn't a Matt Light, so I'm going to say cack. I can I go for a bonus point. Are you going for a bonus point if it is cack? Well, it is cack. I'm going to confirm that. So Nick's right. gone two or not, but we'll give Nick for, first crack. For a bonus point. Uh, uh, oh, no, over to Brian. No, no idea. Ian Jury. Yeah. It is, yes. <laughs> yeah. 
When I came up with that one, I said to Mark, don't give that one to Brian, because I know he'll know that one. He'll know the, he'll know the, black one. <laughs> mm. the trick of this game was trying to find other bands that wrote lyrics that were slightly obscene, like uh, yeah. Mac Lads, and there aren't that many. Um, yeah. I could have found some for you. Brian, the second lyrics are, she came from Bidolf and she called me Duck. I've seen her picture in a dirty book. Mac. Yes. Absolutely. Bidolf's just down the road from Michaelsfield. Yeah. Yeah. Thought that might be a giveaway. Uh, yeah, true. And that's from, you don't happen to know the song, do you? No. It's from a song only they could write called Piles. <laughs> I think I think Matthew's accent sort of didn't really do it justice like I'm duck to, and book look, doesn't work with duck and book does I'm it trying to throw i'm trying to give him the, the <laughs> give him the eyes you have to say luke in the kook book <laughs> you've got a proper mac accent as well right, as well, my favorite my favorite is not exclusively mac but there aren't that many places that say e i'll go to the foot of our stairs mm, means, classic george formby isn't it if you if you're if you're southern that means i'm a bit surprised <laughs> right nick so this is to put you back in front. I broke into the palace with a sponge and a rusty spanner. She said, I know you and you cannot sing. I said, that's nothing. You should hear me play piano. That's CAC. It is CAC. Any idea who the uh, who it is for the bonus? I don't know why I'm thinking squeeze, but I just think that's probably nonsense. No, no, not squeeze, I'm afraid. Uh, it's uh, The Queen is Dead by the Smiths. Oh, it's the Smiths? Right, okay. Yeah. The gloomy bastards, yeah. So, <laughs> I was guilty of that one, by the way. Um, where are we? We're number three, aren't we? So, Brian, yeah. number three, you're two for two as it stands. So, to make it three for three, pissing down with rain on a Tuesday night, I stood and watched my team play like a bag of shite. Mac, lads. Oh, yes. He's superb. Know the song? Don't fear the sweeper. But it's it is a Mac Lad song, so it is Mac, and it's three out of three for McClure. I'm going to go right to the wire by the looks of it. So this is your fourth one, Nick. Um, uh, and I'm probably going to have to say this in the Geordie accent as well, okay? It's probably giving it away. Uh, you faced in the pub on a Friday night. You all right? Asked where she worked. She said, how are we in shite? Which is obviously not the Mac Lads if it's a Geordie accent, but... Uh... So I'm going to say Keg, but who am I going to say? Which Geordie band? Don't know. Well, again, I think I've thrown you a curveball there. That is the Mac Lads. Oh, and it's God. I've done you with the accent. That's it's a song oh. called Geordie Girl. So. Oh. He's <laughs> done you. you see, I'm, not, I'm not familiar with their entire oeuvre. <laughs> I'm not sure any of us are. It took us about it took us about three days of research to write this quiz. Um, All right. Okay. Well, the pressure's on now, uh, Brian. Can you take uh, take advantage of Nick's slip up? All right, so it's fourth attempt for Brian. I'm just reading this through so I can... Uh... She was the perfect woman. She was my kind of bird. She stayed in the kitchen and she never said a word. Cack. Cack? Mm-hmm. Oh, he's missed. He's blazed it while... Oh, no, over the bar. He's blazed it over. It's true. It's, it's the Mac lads and it's a song called Miss Macclesfield. I think I'm going to say that you thought that was too obvious. I think you thought that was too much. No, none of them have been, the only one that hasn't been obvious was Ian Judy. <laughs> well, I will take that as a compliment. Because I knew that, that's all. <laughs> right, this, no. is to, this is to really stick the pressure on, Nick. Um, your final penalty is, like a game bird reserve short on pheasants, Weaver's Cottage is devoid of tenants, a market town that lacks quintessence. That's chatteris without your presence. 
That is definitely CAC. It definitely is CAC, absolutely. Do you know what it is? That's the Dewey Oxford. But who is it? No, I don't know who it is, I'm sorry. Putting out their misery, Mark. Uh, that is, for what is Chatteris by Half Man, Half Biscuit? Ah. So, yeah. so if I'm correct, Brian needs this to make it a tie. Oh. Which puts us in the, you know what, because we haven't got a tie. Like a goal. <laughs> <laughs> so we're only playing for pride. So, Brian, if you get this, then it's a draw. So, uh, Brian, to draw the quiz to the conclusion and potentially make it four all is this one. You started getting fatter three weeks after I left you. Now you're going with some kid. Looks like a bad comedian. Cack. Oh, he's good. He's good. It's Cack. Any idea what it, who it was? Arctic Monkeys. <laughs> oh, right city. Yeah, right city, but wrong band. Pulp, Rasmus. Although, so it's a tie, but didn't Brian get a bonus point? So, uh, he, 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 he did, yeah. Didn't explain that properly, did you? No, yeah. so, no we didn't. We made no, that I, bit up as we went along. I'll, I'll take the draw. I'm happy with the draw. McClare's Mailbag. McClare's Mailbag. McClare's Mailbag. It's hardly question time, but Matthew, please do your best Fiona Bruce impression and pull the listeners' contributions to the mailbag out for Brian and Nick, please. Okay, uh, so Mark wants to know from you, Nick, uh, what political figure do you think would have made a great Manchester United manager? <laughs> well, that's a very good question. <laughs> do you know, Gordon Brown actually would have been quite a good football manager, I think, actually. Yeah. I mean, he loves football. I mean, he... he um, no, he's not. He's, he's a Ray Throvers fan. He <laughs> yeah, quite. But he's a, he, he was close to... I think he kind of knew Fergie reasonably well. And I remember him telling me about the Brazilian twins being the Raphael brothers being signed before it was news. Uh, he told me on some trip abroad that we did. Um, but he's, he's got that kind of fire in him, I think, and that absolute passion and the, the obsession with winning. So we'll, we'll go with Gordon Brown. Yeah, good with numbers and, uh, you know, figures and, and that all that kind of stuff as well. But Watch his very obscure games. I mean, I, occasionally I go to number 10, so I have a meeting with somebody and, you know, there's no Gordon's in, you know, in the den, as they call the Prime Minister's office sometimes, watching some pretty obscure match. Really? Um, so Rob Peters says, you once described Alex Ferguson as the greatest live in Britain, Nick. Did you ever have to deliberate over that for too long? And uh, who else was in the mix, if so? <laughs> yes, it was. It was a sort of sort of instant thought on the day he retired, um, which, you know, absolutely did the trick. Because suddenly everybody was talking about it and it did seem entirely implausible. But, um, you know, I, I, for the reasons I've said earlier, I am a genuine admirer of his. He has got flaws. I think Brian will know that. Lots of people know that. He is not without his flaws, Bergie, because for all that Brian was talking earlier about the loyalty, for example, which is so obviously there, if you get on the wrong side of him, you pay quite a high price, I think. But um, I thought he was just an incredibly great example, and I think remains an incredibly great example of leadership qualities. Um, and of passion and belief in other people. So I, I'm going to stick with that thing. Yeah. Oh, Once gave me a great piece of advice, by the way, for Brian and I entering our dotage at the age of 60 this year. His key advice, I said, "What? how do you enjoy retirement? And he said he got a great piece of advice, which is from a friend of his, never wear your slippers at breakfast time. <laughs> now, does that need unpacking? Do you need that no. explanation? Yep. You don't pack him for me, no. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, 
if if you get to the stage where you're just slobbing about your pull-ons and your slippers at breakfast, then you've 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 given up. Yeah, oh, I can. Yeah. He puts his shoes on. I think I'll wear my slippers the next time I see him. I'll go. You'll be down. I'll go to see him with slippers on. Yeah, I bet you don't though, Brian. Do you? Because we've said on this show. Oh no, no, it's different. No, it's different. It's not. It's, yeah, but it's a different thing, though. Isn't it? he's, no, I meant he's the. Well, sorry, what do you mean? What you well, I meant, the, I meant the slippers comment because I mean I know we've, I've joked on this before, but you're you're anyone that knows you knows that your timekeeping is impeccable, and you always say that is purely because <laughs> because of Alex. Oh, to him, yeah, because fair, Fergie times not to do with um, pointing to the watch, just to do with being there ten minutes before he said. Yeah. So, Nick, if if you ever agree to meet Brian in uh, one of the many pubs in Presbury or Macclesfield, be sure to expect him to turn up fifteen minutes early. And it's not to get it's not to get the round in. It's because uh, he doesn't. Oh, yeah, because, no, not, uh, not always. No, yeah, still terrified. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, I've just remembered if this is of interest to you. I feeling slightly guilty now because I tripped Gordon Brown into saying he wanted England to win the Euros because he was. Um, <laughs> he was on a trip and he was launching the government's backing for England to host the 2018 Euros. And I said, who do you want to win? Knowing that he was buggered if he answered, you know, didn't say England because they were the hosts. And he was buggered if he did. It became a huge, I felt really guilty afterwards, going a huge storm afterwards because, you know, loyal Scotsman backs England to win championship. It's not the first time you've upset the Scots though, is it, Nick? It's true. Yeah, but it wasn't the Scots, it was Alex Salmond, who it turns out upset a lot of people. But I, I did have, I did have four and a half thousand people marching <laughs> on the BC Scotland headquarters in Glasgow <laughs> behind a 30-foot banner saying Sack Nick the Liar Robinson. And I went on because there was some row about some script line I'd used in the um, coverage. TV coverage of the Scottish independence referendum in 2014. And I went on Have I Got News for You a few weeks later, and they showed this banner, and Paul Merton said, if I were your agent, I'd get them to change your slogan. You don't want to be known as Nick the Liar. It's not a good look. <laughs> I could tell Brian had been holding that, holding that one in for the whole show. But a, a lesson learned from uh, Gordon Brown, because Brian always, never, ever wants Scotland to win. He, we had Brian O'Driscoll oh, no, no, last England, time. And he, and he, yeah, England, sorry, no, England. Scotland. Sorry, not Scotland. No, so he's, he's never going to go down the uh, Gordon Brown route of saying, uh, even though he resides in this. Oh country. no, no, I can under- completely understand why you would have to if you were uh, if you were prime minister at the time. Of course, you'd have to. You know, you represent the UK, aren't you? But as an he had to issue a statement, Brian. Later, I've just looked it up. He had to. <laughs> so, having said he wanted England to win. He then had to say, my ideal scenario is that Scotland play England in the final and Scotland wins. <laughs> poor old, oh, poor old poor Gordon. Gordon, poor Gordon. <laughs> he must have had a, hours of meetings to come up with that, <laughs> that statement. But uh, I, it's funny you mentioned about not being liked in Scotland, because I was up there the other day, actually, doing a thought. Uh, and uh, soon after, because the referendum, you know, remained something that divided families and divided communities and people felt very passionate about it. And uh, I got in a cab, actually, at Glasgow Airport. And the cabbie said, I'm surprised you can show your face around here. <laughs> and uh, and I went, no, no, go on, tell me. I don't know if you ever have this with people sort of taking you on. And then they think that's all they need to say. I went, no, go on. He said, well, I'm not going to have a row with you. I said, well, look, you just have had a row with me. And we got half an hour from the airport into George Square, where I was going. Tell me. And I said, there's only one condition. You can talk. You can talk for most of the journey, but you've got to let me answer back, like, just before we arrive. So he talked, he talked. 
And about after about 10 minutes of him saying, I've done this and that, and the BBC, like this, uh, I eventually said, well, look, I did actually make a mistake and I apologise for the mistake, uh, but here's why it's complicated to cover these sorts of stories, et cetera. And I got out of George Square and said, how much is that? And he went, no fair. So what do you mean, no fair? He said, you let me tell you, no fair. It was about a 40 quid fair, but he didn't, uh, didn't charge me a penny. I mean, that's a, that's a nice story, but I mean, in all seriousness, we all know, and we've spoken about it on this show, social media these days can be very poisonous. Did it get hairy at times? Oh, God, yeah. I mean, I I, I shouldn't I should laugh about it, but I can laugh about it happily now. I had cancer soon after uh, the referendum, and people were very nice about it. It became public because I was supposed to be covering an election, and I had to be public about it to explain why I wasn't able to cover it as normal and I lost my voice for a period. So, so I couldn't sort of be private about it really. And one, and one loyal Alex Salmon supporter mm. said, um, he said, I hope you recover from cancer. I thought it was that nice. He said, having insulted me a couple of times, he said, and then, and then get run over by a bin lorry. I thought it was funny. My wife to this day thinks it's not funny at all, but I thought it was funny. The truth is, it's a lot easier as a bloke. I think women get terrible, frightening abuse. Yeah. As a bloke. <laughs> Sometimes it's funny, but a lot of the time you just have to shrug it off. I mean, yeah. it's the same as some bloke coming into up to you in a pub and shouting. You wouldn't take it all that seriously, would you? I, I think I think social media gives people a lot more of a backbone now, though, doesn't it? They don't have to come up to you and shout at you. They can say it at you from hundreds of miles away, but fair enough. You seem to be able to deal with it, which is good. Yeah. Um, two last quick questions. Stu McGraw, his question for Nick, which politician has been the slipperiest to pin down to an actual answer to a question you've asked them? I mean, that, I imagine there's a, there could be, we could be here all day. Yeah, but, but definitely Boris Johnson. Oh. Definitely Boris Johnson. Mm. Impossible <laughs> to interview. I, I, I'll be honest with you, I hated interviewing him because he just knew it wouldn't go well. Because either you'd have to point out that he was avoiding the question or um, and then you have a row and half the audience get cross or you don't point it out and the other half the audience gets cross because you let him get away with it. And I did an interview with a Tory conference with him, which was a big deal. You know, it was a long interview, big slot on the Today programme. And I prepared massively for it. In fact, I took his chief of staff to Old Trafford, who's a red just to have a bit of a chat about it. I said, look, can we just try and do, not chat about the content, you never do that, chat about how we have a proper conversation, not have a row. And I got Johnson to arrive a few minutes early for his interview so we could chat. He completely ignored every question I asked. When in radio, you see, you can wave your hands about like I am now to try and say, come on, move on. And, um, and at the point I kept doing this, he broke eye contact and started looking at the wall. <laughs> and I said, I said, I, not in these days, I now prepare a line to shut some up because of this mistake. I said, because I was just so exasperated. I did the effect, the equivalent of Roy Keane on Harland all those years ago. I said, Prime Minister, stop talking. And it... And the thing is, I've actually apologised for saying because I thought it was a bit unprofessional and looked a bit disrespectful. I still get people coming up on the street to me going, brilliant, we love that moment you told us. <laughs> Another free cab for there. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, um, it's regular correspondent Cumbrian Dave, who's been in touch, and he's actually got one for you, Brian. 
Um, and here he is. One for Chucky. Which journalists did Sir Alex Ferguson appear to have the most respect for? Well, the, the, this goes back to a thing that uh, Nick mentioned a few minutes ago about I wouldn't necessarily see it as a flaw. It's getting making the decisions about what he felt was when people had uh, kind of gone against or been disloyal in a way. So I know that the, the same kind of thing that would have been uh, with the we were talking about the politicians, older politicians or politicians that spent a long time ex prime ministers not been a fit or not maybe not uh, maybe people now not seeking their counsel. Uh, but and I know that he was a huge uh, admirer of uh, Michael Varney. You know, he was he, would, he could have said anything really about him. But he, I think it was the same thing about if people knew him and what to be writing about him and his football teams, he'd be okay with that. When it came down to the thing about the BBC, someone saying something personal about people that were close to him, and that's that's unacceptable. That's that it didn't matter about what um, what that particular person did. Yeah, criticise him. He would always protect his team and his players, but don't go beyond that. And some of the times he would have felt that if the criticism had gone too far and hadn't been, uh, a lot of the times it'd be the reported on on things that he had not said in a way he didn't say it just because that particular journalist wanted to make the story appear in a particular way. Uh, it benefited lots of people in that he was he spent a lot of time in litigation and a lot of times he won and he won money and he would take his staff out for dinner. Hmm. I was going to say, and also Nick Robinson as well, obviously. Um, but, but on a serious note... Well, if he, Nick wouldn't have been doing that, uh, well, no, it, that, that thing if he hadn't respected them. Well, that's you know, what I was... Like, that's right what away, I was they'd been, either just went, uh, listened to your, your pitch and then went, no, son. Yeah. Or he might not even did that, you know, because there's a great story Nick, about where where he's just he's making a mark and making a a kind of I don't really know exactly. I need to ask him what he did, but but as a, there was a lad that I know there was at university at the same time as me, a lad called Lawrence Stonigan, who's a journalist, went for the Guardian, and he was actually in the Lloyd Cole locomotions as well. So he's greedy. Not only was he a musician, he was also a journalist as well. And his first press conference at Old Trafford. <coughs> He uh, he didn't really know what the 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 format was or the criteria for a particular this and he and he and he stood up to ask a question and uh, he uh, he stood up and said uh, he, and the Fergie pointed him and said uh, uh, you son now you think because he's a Scottish accent he'd be given some uh, some whatever credit but he just said oh hello Sir Alex uh, um, I'm on the store done again over the Guardian and he just went next <laughs> <laughs> and Lawrence didn't know whether to sit down or stand up you know to have a, is that, was it a joke or not you know but he just it probably was his I think it was him being humorous but I think he was kind of making a point to everybody that you know that he decides what he who he's going to speak to and what he's going to answer yeah. The first time I actually seen that, I was quite surprised because he just launch into a, a conversation. He didn't wait for questions. He would tell them, first of all, what he wanted to say. And by the time he said, maybe after 10 minutes, 15 minutes, what he wanted to say, there was very few questions because he'd given them what he, I think he knew that they wanted at that yeah. particular moment. 
So he was going like that. It must well, have been a story, didn't he? He understood the story. Yeah. Whole pizza battle in the tunnel at Arsenal uh, was a brilliant. I mean, it was partly true, but it was also just a brilliant way of deflecting from the fact that Rooney had died for a penalty, and we'd. Uh, I've never celebrated so much actually. Um, at uh, uh, actually, it was Old Trafford, wasn't it? it was Arsenal when we we stopped yeah. there? Fifty yeah, well, run. Well, um, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't be good about accusing Wayne Rooney of diving, so. <laughs> I think you've upset him enough. <laughs> yes, <quite. laughs> yeah, guess. We'd never allow, by the way, political journalists would never allow somebody to get away with the tricks that football managers do, but they will. But it, it must be a, a, a huge uh, compliment to you, though, the fact that he sort of put his trust in you to, to host that show and, and you know, he could have easily uh, you know, not done that, I imagine. I think he, I mean, probably call, calling him the greatest living human was probably a... <laughs> <laughs> so that's why you do it. To get you some credit. Cynics, cynics might suggest there was something. No, I tell you what, he wanted to... It was one of those great happenstances where I had had this idea that I mentioned at the beginning, which is that the skills of leadership would apply across different uh, areas of life. And I didn't realise he'd have the same idea and was already writing this book called, uh, was it Leaders or Leadership? I can't remember. Leading. Leading, that was it, with Michael Morris, who's a businessman friend of his, uh, incredibly successful investor in the United States. Um, And and I bid, as he was already doing it, and I think in the back of his head and Jason, his son, who's his agent, they thought we want a non-football person to do this because they'll see it in a different way. And so having a non-football person who is nevertheless a kind of loyal red and a sort of, you know, great uh, admirer of his, I guess, was what allowed it to happen. It was one of the great privileges of my privileges of my life. And I, I say this for just for one last story about him. I wrote to him saying, look, Alex, you know, since you agreed to do this, I've had cancer um, and I've lost my voice. And I will not have a perfect voice for this documentary. I think it's good enough, but I don't think it's... And he could easily have used that as an excuse to walk away. I mean, it wasn't great, my voice at the time. And, um, you know, I was incredibly touched that he he stuck with it, said I made a commitment. You put the work in, and, and he did it. It's great. Yeah, I think that's the mark of the man. Well, I think we've reached the end of the mailbag and the end of the show, so... Yeah, that's the end of MMQ's. That's McClare's mailbag questions, and it's time for us to file out of the chamber once more. Uh, we'll do all the usual goodbyes, and thank you, starting, of course, with Nick Robinson. Nick, it's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, thank you for taking time away from the madhouse of British politics to be with us. I've enjoyed it. It's been a privilege. Thanks, Nick. Brian and Matthew, thanks, chaps. Oh, thank always, you very much. What, what a pleasure. Thank you, Nick. That was brilliant. Yeah, and uh, final thanks goes to you out there for continually tuning in and giving us three something to look forward to doing every month. The usual nudge to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Brian McClare Pod and hit that all-important subscribe button wherever you enjoy downloading us from. We're part of the Sports Social Podcast Network and you can catch up with what they're doing at www.sport-social.co.uk. Okay, that's your lot. We're looking forward to seeing you next time and take care. Life with Brian, talking films or music. Life with Brian, talking TV and food. Life with Brian, talking trivia and exercise. Life with Brian, it's different every episode. Life with Brian, talking politics and football. Life with Brian.
Podcast Network.